Welcome back to Home Ice Advantage. I'm so thankful for you being here. Before we get into the show, I just ask that you share this episode, whether you text us someone, share it on Twitter, put it on Facebook, however you communicate with people. If you could please, that'd be super. You have no idea how much you as an individual can help grow the show. In case you forgot, my name is Colin, and this week will be another history episode, as I've been doing a lot of lately. Longtime fans of the team will know that Green Acres is an insult towards the Carolina Hurricanes about their time in Greensboro. The seats inside of Greensboro Coliseum, where the Hurricanes played those two seasons, were green, and you will get into it, but there was not a lot of fans, so many of those seats were open. ESPN decided to make fun of us. Well, to be clear, ESPN was not the only media company or newspaper or whatever making fun of the team. It was pretty much every news outlet that came to a game in Greensboro took the time out of their day to also insult us in some way. If you actually watch the first game in Greensboro on YouTube, it's the Penguins feed, which is probably the best for me to explain this. And they take a couple of shots, not only at hockey in North Carolina, but hockey down south, taking shots at both Tampa and Florida, which I find funny modern day coming off of a two-peat by the Lightning. The Carolina Hurricanes' time in Greensboro is considered to be a failure by fans and media alike. Often, the only stories you hear about the club's time playing in Greensboro is about a black corn that has become infamous that was used to close off certain sections of the arena. On occasion, you may hear a joke about how strange it was for the team to play in a temporary location while waiting for their new arena in Raleigh. But the truth is, playing in a temporary location is commonplace in professional sports. In the same year, 1997, the Houston Oilers of the NFL played in Memphis, Tennessee, almost 200 miles away from their eventual home in Nashville. They would change their name at the end of the season to the Tennessee Titans. The Carolina Panthers played their inaugural season in 1995 as an NFL expansion team. Home games were played in Clemson, South Carolina, roughly 130 miles away from Charlotte, which would be their permanent home. When the New England Whalers left Boston in 1974, the team was forced to play the first half of the season in Springfield, Massachusetts. Although this was actually the shortest of all the detours mentioned so far, being only a 30-minute car trip away. The Hurricanes organization would end up spending two seasons in Greensboro for a total of 85 games. While I will admit that the time in Greensboro was not without its problems, a failure it was not. On December 1st, 1999, a case study was published about the organization in the Journal of Services Marketing. Franchise Relocation and Sports Introduction, a sports marketing case study on the Carolina Hurricanes fan adoption plan. Authored in part by the marketing manager for the Carolina Hurricanes, Sheila Carter, the study listed four challenges for the new organization. Relocation, sports introduction, creating awareness, and temporary tenant status. Two of those challenges being common in pro sports. Relocation almost always goes hand-to-hand with creating awareness. While being a temporary tenant can become counterproductive with an organization's long-term goals, it will run its course on a timeline you usually know in advance and control. But sports introduction? Well, that's a harder nut to crack. You're not simply trying to get someone to buy merchandise or attend an event. You're teaching your target market why your product should be important to them. Unlike a potato chip company, A sports team needs you to become emotionally invested. Its goal as an organization is to create the angry fan yelling in the nosebleeds about a missed call. No one is going to say that Raleigh or Greensboro was the mecca of hockey. Both had semi-pro teams prior to the Hurricanes' arrival. Raleigh had the ice caps of the ECHL, 
and Greensboro had the Monarchs of the AHL, but neither team had the fan base that could support an NHL club. The Ice Caps attendance maxed out just above 5,000 in 1995. Monarchs games hovered around 6,000. Combining the two fan bases wouldn't even fill a modern NHL arena. It became a major objective of the team to teach the underdeveloped market about the game of hockey. To this end, the Hurricanes hosted hockey clinics and visited schools throughout the region, something it still does to this day. Hockey 101, a video produced by the team, was supposed to teach prospective fans about the game and its rules. A brochure entitled, Hurricanes Hockey, Classes in Session, had six lessons from hockey talk, player position, and referee signals. The brochure was printed and distributed at home games and community events. Some of the information also made its way onto the season's pocket schedule. Mark Roberts, WRL's traffic reporter and the public address announcer inside the Coliseum, would explain the rules utilizing the Jumbotron when needed. For game broadcast, we're going to turn to Chuck Caton, who is the longtime radio play-by-play for the Hurricanes. This is a conversation between him and Joe Ovius on A Brief History of Triangle Sports, which is hosted by Joe. It is an incredible podcast. If you in any way enjoy what I do here with the history episodes, you're going to love A Brief History of Triangle Sports. There was a Chuck Kane interview, a John Forslund interview, there's an episode on the Raleigh Ice Caps, and everything that doesn't have to do with hockey is still fascinating. So you should add that to your podcast list. I don't know. It's available on all major distribution platforms, just like this podcast. But here's the clip. So when you came over, did you change how you did the broadcast, knowing that the audience that's listening to the team or listening to the broadcast right now might not have the same level of knowledge as an original six-team fan base or what you had in Hartford? Well, Joe, I think that's a great question, and I think that the way I approached it was the way my baseball broadcasting idol, Ernie Harwell of the Detroit Tigers, uh, would, and I read his book, and uh, even he did that year after year, mm-hmm. and not assuming that all baseball fans know everything about baseball, the ins and outs of the lingo and of the strategies. And he said, be able to broadcast uh, right in the middle. Don't talk down to people who don't know the game, but don't really have to talk up to people who do the game, who know the game, and mm-hmm. uh, and and be right in that middle ground of education. And the way I took it was very simple. There's a lot of things about hockey that new fans may not realize. Everybody, and this is always kills me. They always think icing. What's icing? You know, <laughs> what's offside? I don't understand these rules of hockey. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I don't understand. I don't understand somebody face masking somebody and scoring a touchdown in a Super Bowl <laughs> and not getting caught. But icing simple. It's yes, elementary. It's and, very and so black I and thought, white. So um, I would take the approach my first season of broadcasting here in North Carolina, where when there would be an icing. Not every time it happened, but periodically I would say, well, again, once the puck is shot from your half of the center red line over the goal line untouched and the other team goes back to touch it, that's icing. I would say that once every five or six times there was an icing. Hurricanes marketers believed it was important to teach prospective fans not only about the game, but about the team itself. This created an interesting dilemma for the organization. How do you celebrate the history of a team that you just started writing? Teaching the history of the game was simple. Hockey 101 even had a segment based around the greats of the game. The marketing team also leaned into promoting superstars from their rivals, like Wayne Gretzky. It was decided the history of the Hartford Railers would be made available in the team's 1997-98 media guide. 
this choice would torn out to leave a unique connection between fans of the new organization and the one it had replaced, a connection that lasts to this day. Clearly, this is a simplification of the history. But if you want to go back and figure out why Hurricanes fans love the Whale so much and why we feel such a connection to Whaler's history, it can be rooted to many decisions like this throughout the team's early history. Peter Kamanos used the attendance numbers at the Hartford Civic Center to justify moving the team. Opened in January of 1975, the arena held only 14,750 fans. This is where Greensboro Coliseum was actually superior to almost any other team in the league. Only Montreal's Bell Center in the modern times could have held more fans, 20,800 and 21,300, respectively. The inaugural regular season game in North Carolina, October 3rd, 1997, was billed as a historic event. Opening night ended up setting a franchise record. A total of 18,661 fans appeared inside of Greensboro Coliseum. It was a healthy mix of the visiting, Pittsburgh Penguins, Hartford Whalers, and then Carolina Hurricanes fans. Pittsburgh fans were there to cheer on their team, captained by Ron Francis. Hurricanes fans came to meet their new team, and a few of them were trying to learn the game that they had only ever skimmed over in the paper. Railers fans were sh- Railers fans were there to show their displeasure with the new team's owner. Members of the Whalers Boosters Club made the almost 12-hour bus trip down south. For me, it will be closure. It won't really sink in or gone until I can actually see them on the ice. That will close the chapter. I'll know in my mind... They're really not coming back, said Janet Sayer, a member of the Booster Club, to Raleigh's News and Observer. The president of the Booster Club had this to add. You'll be able to spot us with our chance of come home Hartford. They may be called the Hurricanes, but there will always be the Whalers in my heart. Peter Kamano's response to their presence was decades ahead of its time, when he called them. They're a bunch of jerks as far as I'm concerned. Okay, yes, that is a clip of Don Cherry saying that, infamously at the Hurricanes, but Peter Kamanos was really quoted calling them a bunch of jokes that night, and I just couldn't resist. Opening night also highlighted the team's partnership with NASCAR. Jeff Borden had already been named the team's spokesperson, and would drop the ceremonial first puck alongside Kamanos. The partnership between the stock car racing giant and the newly relocated hockey club was seen as a win-win situation. Both sport empires had a target audience of mostly men ranging from 18 to 45. Each also tried to attract female and younger viewers to make a fan experience into a family experience. There are a number of similarities between NASCAR and the NHL, from the speed and accuracy of the athlete to the excitement and electricity that surrounds the event. I have no idea if that's how Jeff really sounded. I just did it because I'm recording late, and I'm going to roll with it because I don't want to have to re-record. But that is actually what he said about hockey at the time. The Hurricanes also sponsored Borden's number 99. The Hurricanes logo, name, and ticket office number would, would appear on his car multiple times through that season. Anaheim was actually the first NHL franchise to associate with NASCAR. Jeff's brother, Ward Borden, had a sponsorship with them earlier that same year. Once we understood the passion for NASCAR and this part of the country, we thought of it as an opportunity to be associated with the type of people we wanted to be associated with hockey. It's a very similar bridge to cross. Those are the words of Rick Francis, the then Vice President of Marketing and Sales for the Carolina Hurricanes. Again, don't know why I did a voice with it, but I did it. NASCAR would be used against the team in future years. Much like Tampa Bay in previous years, 
the Hurricanes would become a punching bag for fans of other teams. Well, I remember uh, last year when we were down in Tampa, a couple of years ago, we were sitting in the stands, speaking of auto racing, and there were a couple of guys sitting in the stands during the morning skate, and they saw the guys skating around in a circle, and I guess they were big race fans, and they said, they just they were just, just warming up at the beginning of the skate. He said, what are they doing, taking caution laps? Brian Trotje thought that was hilarious, and that's the way they think down here. I mean, if you're skating around in a circle, it must be caution laps. I admit that this clip bothers me a lot more than it should, but it bothers me. And the first part is the accent. First of all, it's bad. And second of all, I have never met anyone who actually sounds like that. But the main part for me is an oversimplification of millions of people. I think that's what bothers me the most when people, well, uh, the Hurricanes don't have any fans, you see. Uh, they're all bandwagon fans. Oh, well, hockey doesn't work in the South. No, you just think you know more than everyone else, but... That's not the point of this, so let's keep going. Tom Dundon, who purchased the team in 2018, would bring NASCAR back into the fold, introducing NASCAR night one night per season. The organization didn't stop with NASCAR to get people into the building. More traditional marketing techniques like Student Rush or Family Night were given a boost thanks to a sponsorship agreement with Carolina Ford dealers. The agreement would give away 20 cars and tens of thousands of tickets to games throughout the season. All you had to do as a prospective fan was walk into a dealership, take a test drive, and here are your tickets. Fans learned quickly how to abuse the system. It takes only a simple search of r slash canes or one of the handful of Hurricanes fan pages on Facebook to find the stories. One person shares that his office mate had a rotation of who would go get the tickets for each game. Another shares about a local dealer who got tired of wasting their time with people who were never going to buy cars and would simply give you the tickets if you asked for them. Most Hurricanes fans have never stepped a foot into the Coliseum. Even fewer watched the Hurricanes play in the Coliseum. That first game would set a franchise record, 18,661. The Hurricanes lost 4-3 to the Pittsburgh Penguins. For the next home game, only four days later, against the LA Kings, 6,083 fans came to cheer on the Canes. Less than a third. The team would average an attendance of 9,086 for that fourth season, and 8,188 for the second. A highlight of the two seasons was when the Great One came to town. The first game on November 21st, again split fans in attendance. Of the new franchise record of 19,358 fans in attendance, a third of them were there to support the visiting New York Rangers. A second third were there cheering on their new hometown team. And the final third were there to witness history in action. The Hurricanes would rank last in attendance those two seasons. Arena staff would stop checking tickets after the first period, making it easier and almost encouraged for fans to move closer to the ice. There were also claims of fans walking into the Coliseum after the first intermission and watching the last two periods for free. A common theory is that Greensboro was underattended thanks to a lack of interest from fans. John Michael, who covered the team for ESPN.com both seasons in Greensboro, had this to say during our interview. The focus in the organization at the time was very much towards one, Raleigh, two, Raleigh, <laughs> and three, anyone we can pick up in the meantime. And not only were potential Greensboro fans treated as almost second-class fans, but a lot of people look over the fact that they already had a hockey team. They had the Monarchs of the AHL, which were a good team, had been there for almost a decade at that point. There was a little bit of territorialism, but as I said, after that second, at the end of that second year, um, 
people started forgiving them, I guess, right in time for them to leave. And if you're a fan from Raleigh, who is their bread and butter potential fans, it's a 90-minute drive to Greensboro. In fact, it was starting to weigh on the players. So I think guys just got tired. They got, you know, the, the drain of not even living in the city or playing in, that kind of thing. Really got them down after a while. Now just imagine that you weren't being paid to play those games. You were just being asked to drive all the way to Greensboro and paid for a ticket that was more expensive than if you wanted to see a game in MSG. When I asked John to tell me about the first time the Carolina Hurricanes got to the postseason in 1998-1999, John was frank. I would love to say that things got electrified around Greensboro, that the city embraced them, that you know the Coliseans took full advantage of the situation, but they I think their status as a, uh, you know, influx team led Greensboro both, you know, with the citizens of Greensboro, but then also as the city, they didn't do a lot to push the Hurricanes because they knew they were leaving. Peter Comanos was in a rush to move the team from Hartford. The organization would pay the state of Connecticut $20.5 million to break their lease and leave a year early. Surely the organization could have used that season to create a more in-depth relocation plan. I find it highly unlikely that they would have lost more money in Hartford rather than that first season in Greensboro. Everything was put together so quickly. There were some tough periods very early. We moved a pro sports franchise in five months. Normally it takes 18 or 20 months to prepare something of that magnitude. Even Jim Rutherford could admit the early struggles. Halfway through the season, a sports service reported attendance at a 1,000. And it didn't matter that it was a mistake. The legacy of the team's time 90 minutes away from Raleigh was set. Before the start of the second season, the organization decided to use a infamous black cordon to close off sections of the arena. The new configuration set 11,059 fans. Ticket reps were even able to sell out the new configuration seven times that last season four times in the regular season, and all three of the Canes' home games during the playoffs. I'm personally and professionally embarrassed of some of those turnouts, said Matt Brown, who was the managing director of the Coliseum at the time. There always seemed to be tension, like we were in someone else's territory. It was as if some thought we were moving in just to take over for basketball, said head coach Paul Maurice. Time spent in Greensboro was never supposed to be this amazing story. With hindsight, I can say that the Hurricanes and Greensboro served their purpose. The whole idea was to wait until the Raleigh Entertainment and Sports Arena was open, and try to gather as many fans as you can in the meantime. Today, you can speak to a ton of fans who have supported the team since the original game against Tampa in October of 97. Youth hockey participation doubled in Greensboro over those two seasons. Their impact has been tremendous. Said Dick Mashad, who founded Greensboro Ice Sports. The Coliseum itself got a new scoreboard, a second Zamboni, and a new NHL-caliber locker room, all of which were paid for by the organization. Team captain Kevin Deneen had this to say after the team's Game 6 elimination in 1999. I wouldn't have minded going back to Greensboro a few more times this month. Today we look back at Greensboro as nothing more than a joke. Fans of the Hurricanes and their competitors alike make light of the team's struggles. To be fair, it, it's incredibly easy material. 
but we shouldn't lose sight of the purpose of those years. No one saw Greensboro as the next hotspot for Major League Hockey. You would have been called a fool by team officials if you suggested Greensboro could support the team long term. The Coliseum was always meant to be a placeholder. Yet today we look at it as if it was a failure because every game wasn't sold out in what was then the biggest arena in the National Hockey League, in a town that had never had a National Hockey League team or any major league sport of any kind. The sole purpose of going to Greensboro was to wait two years. There was no grand scheme to sell out to a 20,000-person crowd every night. Would Carmanos have loved that? Of course. And if that had happened, they probably wouldn't have moved to Raleigh because they had found no home. I guess I could be galaxy-braining this. I 100% understand that point. But it just seems so stupid to make fun of this time as if it was supposed to be something special when it was never, ever set up for success by the team in the moment. But I don't know. Again, I could be totally galaxy-braining this. The last thing I wanted to do really quick before we wrapped up this episode is look back at the major points of the case study from earlier in the episode. The challenges stated were relocation, awareness, sports introduction, and being a temporary tenant. The plan is here to give a letter grade on each, and as I did earlier, I'm going to combine relocation and awareness, because they're pretty much the same thing. On this one, they get an A. Uh, I mean, I think that's clear at this point. It turned out to be a success, so the awareness worked. Uh, the NASCAR thing, I realize a lot of people think it's dumb, but the demographics do match. Like, I'm sorry, I looked at it. It 100% matches. So that makes a ton of sense for a market that you have not been in previously. On the relocation front, I, like, again, I this is a temporary home, so it doesn't matter. if As long as they survive those two years, that's a success. I also think there's an added plus to making the playoffs that final year in Greensboro, because it showed the fans in Raleigh that this might just be worth something. Not to mention, you know, not every team makes the playoffs, so there's a bunch of people all across the, I guess, North America that are like, oh yeah, Raleigh just got that team. Good for them. Uh, the second part we're going to judge is sports introduction, which, in the time of the study, I guess, I would give a C-plus to the team for. So, yes, they produced the brochure and the Hockey 101 video, and they tried their best to explain the rules. And Chuck Caden explained the rules every time he made a call up until his departure from the team. But the main part of sports, of sports introduction is like peewee or youth level of that sport, which the Hurricanes dragged their feet on for years after they came to Carolina. They didn't choose and or really invest into any any youth hockey until I, don't, I think it was like almost a decade after they moved here. And then the final one, temporary tenant. They get a big fat F. They failed at this one in major, major ways. I don't understand why they had to come from Hartford so fast. It feels like Kamanos just had his feelings for it, didn't want to be there anymore, so he decided to throw away money in Greensboro. They operated in a $20 million deficit that first season. There was no way they would have operated in a $20 million deficit in Hartford. They also decided to market heavily in Raleigh, which I understand because that's going to be your future home. But you could have built this incredibly strong fan base in Greensboro and been a lasting part of the legacy of the team. But at this point, fans in Raleigh are more likely to go visit the Civic Center than they are the Coliseum. And that's because we just kind of ignore this part of our history and we didn't really try to capture it while we were there. 
Unfortunately, this is where this episode's going to end. Thank you for listening. Once again, please share, you know, follow us on social media, rate the podcast, or check our merchandise out. I've really enjoyed doing these history episodes, so if you've also enjoyed them, please let me know. I will continue to make them. This Wednesday, I'll be releasing my interview with John Michael, who is the gentleman you heard several times throughout the podcast. Uh, It's 45 minutes long. We got a Gretzky story, Paul Maurice, and just being media for the Carolina Hurricanes when they first came to North Carolina. It's a great listen, so I can't wait for you guys to hear that. Personally, again, I just want to say thank you, and I will see you on Wednesday.